We'll continue our reading in the book of Genesis, verses 13 to 28, Genesis 47. Now there was no food in all the land, and the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for all the grain they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year had ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their, flock, sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths will be your own as feed for the field, as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone, did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were a hundred and 47 years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day, for the privilege it is to come here in your house, to worship you, to sing songs of praises, and now to hear from you. We thank you for your word, this incredible story we've been following, Lord, of your providential hand and the development of the nation of Israel. We pray your blessing on Andrew here, Lord, as he comes. We thank you for his love for you. We thank you for your love for him. We thank you for the preparation that he has put into this message. And I have no doubt that many conversations that he's had with you during this time. Lord, we ask that you would bless him. And for us, Lord, we ask that we would have ears that could hear and open hearts to hear what you have for us today. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. I'm not the regular preaching pastor, but I have the privilege of exploring God's word with us this morning as we've read. I have two kids. One of them is three, almost four. And a few months back, uh, he, well, more than that, about a year ago, he took a real liking into all things Disney, as most three-year-olds would. And so my wife and I decided that we were going to go to Disneyland someday. So we told him that. We said that we promised our little guy that we would take him to Disneyland. And so about every week or every hour, he'll ask, are we going to Disneyland? And the answer, of course, is not yet. No. <laughs> Someday, soon, we'll get there. But in his little world, uh, Disneyland is just around the corner. And so uh, what he doesn't realize, though, is there's a lot of things that need to happen before, of course, we just get to Disneyland. And one of those is uh, we've got to save some money, right? There's some financial commitments involved. Uh, we want to make sure he's tall enough for most of the rides. So, of course, we're going to wait for that. And so as every step along the way has gone, we bought, we bought luggage, uh, all kinds of stuff. We're getting ready for this trip. We bought a, a measuring stick for our wall so that we can track his progress and make a bit of a, pro a procedure, right? A process of this long fulfillment of our promise to take him to Disneyland. And actually, a few weeks ago, uh, he went to the Disney store uh, in Vancouver. And I think he thought that was Disneyland. So we might be off the hook on the, uh... no, but he was excited and I said, no son, that was not Disneyland, uh, just you wait, it gets even better than that. And so uh, one of the things, raising a three-year-old has been maybe one of the most difficult things I've done, but also maybe one of the most sanctifying things that I continue to do. And so I'm really grateful for it. If you've ever raised a three-year-old, you learn a lot about yourself through your stubborn, rebellious uh, three-year-olds that challenge you every day but I love him dearly and one of the things that I've come to realize is that my son's world is about this big and he can't see beyond the things that he can see because that's how big his world is and I think sometimes as followers of Jesus as sheep that the Bible calls us I think sometimes our world is also this big spiritually and we're like the kid who's slowly waiting for his parents to take him to Disneyland already but you should know though that God shouldn't be counted as slow to fulfilling his promises. Rather, he's sovereign. <laughs> that can be hard for us. He's not slow to fulfill his promises, but he's sovereign. And he chooses to do so to fulfill his promises over spans of time, which he controls and we don't. And I'm thankful for that. I get impatient with God sometimes. And I think we all can relate to a three-year-old waiting to go to D Disneyland. But God should not be counted as slow because there's a promise in progress. And what we see in this passage is exactly that, a promise in progress. Now the original promise goes back four generations. So we're talking about Joseph now, but back four generations was Father Abraham. And God called Abraham initially in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls him up and he, and he makes Abraham a promise and he makes him a, a, an agreement. And we read about that later in Genesis 15. And this is what he says, uh, it, God takes Abraham outside. And here's what we see. God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, Look toward heaven and the number of stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, a few things you need to know about Abraham is him and his wife Sarah had no kids. And the Bible uh, very cleverly says they were advanced in years. They weren't old. No, they were advanced in years. And they had no kids but further, Sarah was barren. They weren't able to have kids, biologically speaking. And so for this promise to happen, for God to tell Abraham, hey, listen, you're going to not only have kids, you're going to have a whole bunch of them, and you're going to have a lot of descendants, that would have been a hard promise to hold on to. 
And so what we see in this story that we read this morning uh, from the worship team in Genesis 30, uh, 46 and 47 isn't merely a story of Joseph. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not merely a story of Jacob either. What we see is that this is a story of God's covenant with his people that goes all the way back to Abraham. And what we see now as on the other side of history where we sit here today, we see that this promise is still being fulfilled and so this story serves as a, as a gear. If you've ever looked inside your watch or watched YouTube videos of uh, how watches work or clocks work, which I do. I'm not technical enough to work on watches, but I can use YouTube. Watches work in an in a incredible way. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of gears, and some are bigger and some are smaller, and some move faster and others move uh, slower. But what happens is they're all moving and they're all working together at different speeds to turn the hands on your watch or on your clock. And so what we see here is this story of Joseph that we're studying this morning is, is one of those cogs. It's one of those wheels by which God is slowly fulfilling his promise. There's a promise in progress. So what we see here is that uh, th this, this story gives us a lens, gives us a perspective into how we should interpret the New Testament. How do we view Jesus? How do we view God? We have the advantage of being New Testament Christians, and this gives us, as all Old Testament uh, historical narratives do, like the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, they show us how God faithfully interacts with his people. And so as the passage this morning was read in two chunks, uh, I think that's a suitable way to divide the text, which is how we'll explore it with the rest of our time. The first passage is from chapter 46, verses uh, 28 through till 47, verse 12. And what we see in those two primary chunks of passage is that there's salvation that's brought to a family, the family of Jacob, the family of Joseph. And in the next passage, we'll see how there's salvation that's brought about for a nation. So salvation for a family, salvation for a nation, and then we'll move into three critical things that I think are important to pick up through this text. So let's jump right in, starting in chapter uh, 46 verses 28. We see that we, we, to recap from last week, we see that the brothers are down uh, in, in Egypt, J Joseph's brothers, and they, they, they're talking with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh sends them up. They say, go back up to Canaan and get your dad, and then you guys can come back down and live here. He says, give no regard for your stuff. Don't worry about booking a moving truck. Don't do any of that stuff. He sends them up with some flock and some carts. He says, load up what you can and the rest. Give no regard for your stuff because the best of Egypt will be yours. And so Pharaoh gives this family this promise to say, come down and we'll protect you and we'll provide for you and we'll sustain you. Now Jacob, the father of Joseph, uh, doesn't know yet what the brothers do. And as readers, we can follow along with this very interesting story and how the story goes. And so in chapter 45, the brothers show up to their father Jacob and they tell their father that Joseph is still alive. Now for 20 years, more than 20 years, 22 years, the brothers have been living a lie and they've convinced Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal and they produced his bloody garment that they fabricated this lie. And so they suddenly tell Jacob that Joseph is alive and the text tells us that Jacob is numb and he doesn't believe them. He says he's numb with disbelief. And I think it's, it's no wonder why, because the text tells us also that, Jake, that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. We aren't supposed to have favorite sons, by the way, and favorite daughters, but Jacob did. And Joseph was that. He says he loved Joseph and he gave him this coat. Joseph had these dreams and these dreams were interpreted. Uh, God gave Joseph these dreams and, and interpretations of them. And 
And uh, these upset the brothers, which of course is why they then later abandon him. But what we see in, in the text is that J- Jacob, it says he held on to these promises. He held on to these dreams in chapter 37. The brothers hated him, but it says that Jacob held on to them. And so it's no wonder that when the thought of losing his son by whom God was going to fulfill these great promises, he was mourning, he was grieving. It says, Jacob says this of his own grief, I'll descend in mourning into Sheol. In other words, when I die, I'll descend with mourning. I'll die mourning into Sheol. Uh, A year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, many of you, I'm I'm sure, heard of the terrible bus crash that rocked uh, the North American junior sports world in Humboldt. There was a family named the LaBelles, and the parents, Tanya and and Peter LaBelle, got a horrifying phone call that their son was among those who had been killed in this bus crash. Their young son, uh, his name was Xavier. And as the truth began to sink in for them, they were, they were invited down to go identify their son. And of course, all these hockey players were, uh, they had made it to the, to the finals, to the playoffs. And so as hockey players do, they all grew their head hair, their beard hair, and they bleached it blonde. And so all these hockey players looked very similar. They're all very fit, similar body builds. And so the bodies were very difficult to recognize. But these parents get called down and they're not convinced. They're having a hard time believing that their son is actually before them, deceased, lifeless. But after two days, they finally come to grips, come to terms with the fact, or at least begin to, that their son is gone. And after two days of anguishing grief, they're at a vigil for this accident, for this tragedy, where they're naming off the the players and the, the coaching staff who have lost their lives. And then the phone rings, and they get a call from the coroner's office who apologizes greatly and says that there's been a misidentification and that their son Xavier is not dead, but he's alive. And so you can imagine the overwhelming joy that these parents experienced with that phone call that said, no, your son's not dead, he's right here. Would you come and see him? And so they left that vigil very discreetly and very, very uh, sneakily. And they, they, I'm sure, no doubt they speeded down to that coroner's office and where they greeted their son and they met him and they hugged him and they kissed him and they embraced him because for two days they had no son. But Jacob for, had no son, his son Joseph, for 22 years was in the same kind of despairing grief that his son was gone. And so it's no wonder he was numb when the brothers convince him. They tell him, hey, Joseph's alive. We're going to go see him. He's actually running the show down in Egypt, and he's invited us. It says he's numb, and it's no wonder. But convinced, finally, he says, okay, let's go. And then the next passage we see is probably akin to a scene from National Lampoon uh, Christmas Vacation where the Griswolds are loaded up into their station wagon and they're heading down to Egypt. It says that there's a caravan of 70 people heading down to Egypt. I can just imagine this trip of, of a broken family who's now heading down to Egypt with the promise of food and, and flourishing. And in verse 29 of chapter 46, we see that J- Jacob and Joseph are reunited for the first time in over 20 years there's this big, joyful, warm embrace. I can only imagine how long that hug was. It says that they wept on each other's neck. And Jacob says, my joy is complete. I can now die. In other words, I've been mourning for so long, and now my son, who I thought was dead, who I believed was dead, is alive, and now I can die. My life is complete. It's enough. But he doesn't die yet. He does, but that's later. Joseph has a pep talk with his brothers 
Of course, because they came down with the promise of inheriting a great land. And so Joseph tells his brothers, hey, listen, guys. In fact, he brings five of his probably best of his kind of top brothers, the least goon-like of his brothers. And he sits down before Pharaoh, and he prepares them for this meeting before they meet Pharaoh. And he says, listen, here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh when he asks what you do. You're going to tell him that you're keepers of livestock so that he can be sure that giving you this land is really the best thing for you. And so they go in to meet Pharaoh, and that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh agrees to give them this land. In verse 6, he says, let them settle in Goshen, and it is the best of all the land. So it's not just any land, but Pharaoh gives them the best of the land. Goshen is in the region of Egypt. We aren't entirely sure exactly where it is, but we know it's conducive for exactly what they needed. It met their needs completely to raise livestock and for life to flourish. And so here they are, about to settle in the land of Goshen. And this, by the way, serves as mutual benefit for both parties because, as we know, uh, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians, and so to just bring in a whole bunch of shepherds obviously wouldn't be culturally suitable, but also it serves to give the family of Jacob and the family of Joseph isolation, to give them their, their time and space, to be able to be independent, to be able to flourish and, and procreate and um, continue to raise this livestock, which, of course, we'll see later is partly how the, the whole nation is preserved. But what we see is that in verse 12, Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. That salvation in this case being saved from this famine that would have killed them, that would have wiped out just slowly because rations were, were depleting, God uses this circumstance to bring about salvation for all of them. And he uses Joseph to do that. It's more, more than just finding refuge, you know, shelter in a storm. It's not just getting away from the famine, but it's also inheriting the best of the land. The family could not only survive, but they could flourish and they could thrive with the land that God provided them through Joseph. So we see that a family is saved. In verses 13 through 28 of chapter 47, we see how a nation is saved. So a family gets saved and a nation gets saved. The text tells us that there's severe famine in all of Egypt, that the fields were barren, and it tells us that the land of Canaan and Egypt were languishing. Languishing is a very suitable word for, for times when there's a famine. It was probably akin to the Great Depression in the 1930s in North America, whereby there was just simply nothing. So as depression increased, as desperation increased, pardon me, provisions decreased. But God gives Joseph an incredible gift. And what, jo what God does is he gives Joseph incredible economic and political wisdom to be able to carry the nation through this time of, of suffering, of depression. Of course, Joseph interpreted a dream of Pharaoh that gave them a forewarning that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so through that, God used Joseph to be able to stock warehouses of grain to be able to stockpile up, to be able to distribute later. So God gives Joseph this incredible wisdom to be able to preserve the nation through this time. But verse 16 of chapter 47 is when they start to come up to Joseph because the text tells us that Joseph was in charge of distrib distributing grain and distributing uh, rations. And so they come up to, to Joseph and they, they agree to sell their livestock in exchange for food. That's kind of a last resort. We got nothing except our livestock. We'll sell that Give us food so that we won't die. Because after all, they tell Pharaoh, what good are we to you if we're dead? Don't let us die before your eyes. And so for the rest of that year, there's enough food by selling their livestock that will sustain them for the rest of that year. But of course, that, that year comes to an end. 
And what happens next is they return and they say that we've got nothing left. All of our money's gone. All of our livestock is gone. All we have left is ourselves and our land. And it says that all of Egypt came to Joseph and Joseph, one by one, from one end of the country to the other, from one end of the nation to the other, took people, their land and themselves, and they offered themselves to be debt servants or debt slaves. In other words, farmers. They say, if you just only spare us, We'll work for you forever, for free. <laughs> Give us seed that we can farm for you. And so Joseph implements a tax whereby 80% of what's raised and what's produced from their own crops, they get to keep for themselves as sustenance. And 20% is implemented as a tax that's turned back to Pharaoh. And it's given to him. So in the midst of economic depression, Joseph has God-given wisdom to be able to not only preserve a nation, but also think forward to when the famine ends. And when they have to restart, there's all this tax that they've implemented that's now stockpiled up in a time of great need. But you should know that this, the, the text here gives us no indication to believe that this is any form of extortion. You see, Joseph never took advantage of the situation. It wasn't for his own personal gain, but rather it was through God's wisdom that he, that he, it, that he um, bestowed upon Joseph for Joseph to be able to carry the nation through this. So the people weren't being extorted or taken advantage of. In fact, in verse 25, they praise Joseph's name and they, they shout and they chant, you've saved our lives. So God uses Joseph to not only save a family, but to save a nation of people who the promise didn't even apply to. Verse 27 says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. It's easy to glance by that verse, but there's one key variance that you may have missed. I'll read it again. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it. You see, God renamed Jacob Israel years earlier. And up until this point in Scripture, anytime you see the word Israel, it's referring to Jacob as a person. But it says they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is the first time where Israel is referred to as a nation in the Old Testament. God's promise, as we read in Hebrews, was that the nation of Israel would, would outnumber the stars in the sky and outnumber the grains of sand on the seashores. And we see here how they're beginning to, to be fruitful and multiply greatly. You see, this is a fulfillment of God's promise that's taking place over spans of time. It's not immediate, but God is slowly working through people, through circumstances, to fulfill his promise. So Joseph's purpose, when he sits down with his brothers... He tells them the purpose of why all this has happened. He basically says, look, I'm a cog in the watch system. I'm a cog in the clock system. God used me to preserve life and to leave there a remnant on earth of the promise God made Abraham. And so Joseph realizes that he's just one way that God is working and God is fulfilling this promise, Joseph recognizes. So the big idea of this passage here is simply this, is that God is not slow to fulfill his promises. And this is an exact example of how this promise that he made Abraham is in progress. And so through, through human history, God chooses to progressively reveal his plan and his purpose. He doesn't reveal it all at once. We didn't make the promise to my son to go to Disneyland and then just do it then. No, it's a progressive revelation that we see through this. So what do we do with this historical narrative? Because if all it is is a story, a good story at that, of how God worked, and we close up and we wrap up and I send you home, what good is that? 
What do we do with this text? How does it apply to us? What, is it, what does it show us about the mind of God and the heart of God? What do we do? Well, I'd like to suggest to you three things. See, Jesus isn't like, like Waldo who hides on every page. Jesus doesn't hide on every page of the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way. But what we do is we take these Old Testament stories and they provide for us lens sort of things that help us interpret the New Testament. They give us a greater glimpse into the heart of God through the gospel. So Jesus is not like Waldo, but this Old Testament story, this particular one, I want to suggest three lenses, three grids that I'm calling them, three gospel grids by which we can better understand the mind and heart of God through the gospel. So with the remainder of our time, we're going to go through these gospel grids. I remember when I was in school, in math class particularly, we had this overhead projector thing that I'm sure are completely obsolete now, but you would put these overhead, the teacher would put these overhead transparencies over top of, of the screen. And what you would do is you could see the question or a story or whatever it was. And I remember my teachers would put another layer over it and they would draw on that other layer and then you could begin to see how they solved the math problem or they were pointing out different things for that particular lesson. And then they would take it off and switch it out, put on another one. And so what we're doing is we're, I'm going to give you three lenses, three overhead projector transparencies, if you will, by which you can interpret the gospel. So the first one, if you're taking notes, uh, you'll see them in your bulletin there, the three gospel grids. The first one is simply this, is God's forgiveness. The gospel's no good news at all if God didn't forgive us. And in this story, Joseph is, is a type of Christ. Now, Joseph isn't Christ. He's not Jesus. But he's a type of Christ. And what I mean by that is that he's a representation of, or he's a symbol, he's the Christ-like figure in the story. And we see this all throughout Old Testament stories with, with guys like uh, Isaac, right, as being this, the, the, um, the promise fulfilled. Moses, Boaz, Esther, Jonah. The list goes on of Christ types in the Old Testament. And so Joseph is a type of Christ, and he, he demonstrates unfathomable forgiveness to his brothers and to his family. What would you do in that instance? 20 years later, it's your chance to deliver revenge. Sweet, sweet revenge. Your brothers are before you. You know who they are. You've got to figure it out. They have no idea who you are. They're literally bowing at your feet, begging you for food and for mercy. How would you respond? I can tell you the human heart's response, natural response, wouldn't be to forgive them. <laughs> Joseph had every right he had every capacity, he had every ability to issue almost any type of consequence, retribution, vengeance that he so desired. It was time for payback. And no one would have challenged him on it. He was second in command after all. No one would have ever asked any questions. Joseph had his moment to issue sweet revenge. He could have killed them if he wanted to. But what do we see as his response? He identifies himself. And he not only extends forgiveness, but he says, guys, what you did, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He forgives them right then and there. Not only that, though, but as we see, is he, he, he gave a, not a reward, but an inheritance. He didn't just spare their lives, but he allowed them to flourish. He gave them a land to inherit, by which we will see that God's promises will be fulfilled. But he lavishes incredible grace so that they can, they can sustain life and, in fact, flourish. You should notice, though, that the very sin of the brothers, and this is something that uh, John Piper, who has become a mentor to me, he has no idea who I am or that he's my mentor, but he is. And one of the things he points out 
is that the very sins of the brothers, the horrible sin of the brothers, of, of attempted to murder their brother, Joseph, is upended. It's those circumstances that are tipped totally upside down and completely inverted through which uh, God chooses to bring about reconciliation. Through the extreme and grave sin of the brothers, God brings about reconciliation. He says this about the gospel, and I think it's incredibly profound. I want to share it with you. Piper says that God doesn't exploit our guiltiness, but he bears the weight of our guilt upon himself, freeing us from guilt's penalty. And he's absolutely right. That God doesn't exploit our guiltiness. He could. He'd have every right to. After all, we've sinned against a holy and just God. He could. He could annihilate every one of us and would be just in doing so, but he doesn't. He gives us forgiveness. Colossians 1 says this, that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You see, at the very fundamental level, the, the, the gospel grid, the first gospel grid we should, we should consider is forgiveness, and that's what makes the gospel good news. Imagine that you're driving down uh, Church Road if you're visiting. Uh, Church Road is kind of a bit of a rural road where the speed limit, I think, is 60, but no one does 60, but it is 60. You're driving down Church Road, and you're so familiar with the road that uh, you could drive it with your eyes closed, but of course that's not smart. So your eyes are open, uh, and you're distracted by your ringing phone, but that's against the law to check that, so you leave it alone, and so you decide to just turn on the radio to distract yourself. And so as you're turning on the radio, you're so familiar with what you're doing, you're glancing away at the radio dial, and you begin to veer off the road. And suddenly your vehicle comes to an instant halt as you've now just collided with a telephone pole on the side of the street. You chuckle, but three weeks ago this happened to a friend of mine. So you get out of your car. He was fine, by the way, mostly fine, <laughs> a little shaken up. Gets out of his car. And people stop and help, and he can't drive away, and people come and help, and the police arrive, and they investigate, and they have their clipboards and their notebooks, and they take his, dri his registration and his driver's license, and um, he's sitting there just waiting for the verdict and waiting to find out what happens next, and the cop walks back to him and gives him some unfortunate news that two days ago, his insurance on his vehicle lapsed. <laughs> so you can imagine the sudden weight of what's just transpired. The telephone pole didn't fall over, but it's completely cracked, and it'll have to be replaced. Vehicle's completely written off, and now he personally is on the hook for every last dollar of the damage. Now, this is where I'm going to take the story into my own hands, but imagine that the talisman phones him one day and says, hey, listen, Mr. Smith, uh, we got you. We're going we're gonna to pick up the bill on this one. And not only that, but we're actually going to replace your vehicle for you. Imagine that. Okay, you'd go tell everybody. You'd tell your neighbors. You'd call all your friends, all your family members about the incredible grace that's been shown to you, about the forgiveness that you've just received from a debt that is, is humanly possible to pay. It'd be hard. It'd be expensive. I don't know how much it would cost. But you could, you could humanly pay it, okay? So let me ask you this. How much more then, how much more awestruck would you be for someone to have paid a debt that could never be paid? which is the price of your sin. Who are you going to tell? How do you respond? How does, that, how does that change every day when you get out of bed, knowing that a debt that you could never pay has been paid on your behalf? And the righteousness that Jesus earned is now imputed towards us. How do you respond? Forgiveness. The second overhead transparency. 
is God's faithfulness. So we've looked at God's forgiveness. We'll look at God's faithfulness. Faithfulness simply means this, that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. That's what it means for God to be faithful. And his faithfulness isn't an accessory that he wears on Tuesdays. It's at his very core, his very character, his essence, his consistency, it's unwavering, it's steadfast. This is God's character. He's faithful, and that doesn't change. Let's look back at the promise that he made to Abraham, that covenant, back in Genesis 15. In verse 13, it says this, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, if you've, you've read the rest of Genesis and Exodus and so forth, this should ring in your mind. This is the Exodus. This hasn't happened yet. But God, right here in Genesis 15, is telling Abraham that you'll inherit a land that's not yours, which is right here. And he says, you'll be there for a while. You'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So you can see, we have, consider your vantage point, right? We're removed. (laughs) We have the Bible right here. Abraham didn't have the rest of Genesis. Joseph didn't have the rest of Genesis in his scroll. This genealogy that we looked at last week very briefly, oftentimes my tendency is to just gloss over genealogies because it's like three miles when you're reading the Bible. It's just like easy reading because you just sort of glance through it. This is significant though, the genealogy in this particular text, and I'll tell you why. It's because it proves God's faithfulness. Remember, Abraham and Sarah had no kids, and you begin to see that they're up to 70. The genealogy gives you 70 names. And it's somewhere between 70 and 75, depending who you include. 75 people have come from a hopeless circumstance where a husband and wife couldn't have any kids. So we see that God is faithful. If I can for a moment step aside from the text for a moment and offer a pastoral word that I think is worth considering, is simply this, is that Abraham didn't see the other side of God's promise. We jump ahead to Hebrews 11. There's a long list of what's called the or what's known as the Hall of Faith. The writer of Hebrews gives us a long list, a great passage of men and women who were heroic because of what God did in their lives. But starting with Abraham, the writer of Hebrews notes that it was credited to him as righteousness, not his pedigree or how good he was or the fact that he just prayed a lot. No, but it was that he had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it says that they died having, sorry, having only seen the fulfillment faintly in the distance. Moses was promised that he would be the one to lead the nation of Israel to the promised land. Do you know how he died? Right at the edge. God takes him up to a mountain and says, see that land? This is as far as you're going to go, but that's the land that they'll inherit once you die. They didn't see the other side. So believing in God's faithfulness for you and I can be difficult because it means we have to make a choice a head choice and a heart choice to choose God and trust him in circumstances that we don't understand. Remember, they didn't have the rest of the story before them. Or consider Job. Job's grief after having lost everything except his wife, but even still his wife urged him and implored him to curse God and die. Job had lost literally everything 
He's sitting around with his friends and he's asking despairing questions, questioning God's existence, God's presence, and he's angry, and rightly so. But in Job, in Job 38, chapter 38, I love this, for this, this chapter, God gets a chance to give a reply. What do you think God says to somebody who's asking him, are you there? <laughs> God answers Job something to the effect of, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth or when I filled up the seas? He says, have you ever come up and just visited the storehouses of snow or the storehouses of hail? Do you know where the wind comes from, Job? He says, or the clouds. Who, who's responsible for hanging up the clouds? Is it you, Job? Where were you when I did all of these things? There's a Christian um, scholar named Gary Habermas, and he's probably in his late 60s by now. But he spent his entire life devoted to researching, defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely true. But he's committed his life to this research, written multitude of books, an incredible scholar. But at one day in 1995, he visited the doctor with his wife, Debbie, because she was experiencing flu-like symptoms, and so they just went to get a doctor's verdict and an antibiotic for the, for the infection if they could. And that, that morning, they left the doctor's office with news they would have never expected that Debbie had four months to live because she had stage four stomach cancer. And so you can imagine, here's a scholar who's given his entire life to researching, defending the resurrected Christ which surely for every area of life has relevance, but begins to take particular relevance when your wife is dying. And so in her final four months of life, they wrestled with these questions, no doubt, day and night. And Gary admits to a time where he had this Job. He was asking God Job-like questions. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? And he, he recounts, I'll read some words here for you from one of his reflections, which he writes about in many of his books. But he has this Job 38 moment where where he has a bit of an aha and an epiphany. And he says this, that I know more about God than Job did. And if Job knew enough about God, then so do I. I know enough about God to trust him with things that I don't know. Now think of your life. Can you say the same? Do you know enough about God or do you know God well enough to trust him with things that you don't know? Is God faithful? Do you believe that? Third, God's forgiveness God's faithfulness. Third is God's providence. There's a song by uh, the delightful Doris Day. Please don't sing it. K Sarah Sarah. The lyrics go, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours, you see. In other words, our world, which is very telling of our culture, by the way, our world says that sort of whatever happens, happens. You know, K Sarah Sarah. You're a product of whatever fate befalls you. However good you've been to others in the universe, the universe will pay you back. Do you believe that? Do you believe that que sera, sera, just whatever? The rest of your life, however many days that is, many or few, it's just up to fate and chance? Well, if you're a Christian, the answer should be no. <laughs> you don't believe that. But our world believes that and tries to convince us of that. The doctrine of providence we see all throughout this story. It's not that God is in all things. God's not in physically everything. God isn't this pulpit. God isn't this lovely shirt. But God uses all of these things. God created everything and God uses it to carry out his purposes. The doctrine of God's providence says that God's continually involved and he's directing all things according to his purposes. That's what Christians believe. We believe that there's no such thing as coincidences. 
on, on a truly serious level. We use that word, you're allowed to use the word. But on a truly deep level, we believe that God is working in all things to bring about all things according to his plan and his purpose. His providential fingerprints are all throughout this book. Consider back Joseph's uh, story right from the beginning whereby he has these dreams and his brothers decide that they've had enough of his dreams. They've had enough of him being the favorite. They get jealous and angry. And so they leave him for dead. And then one brother says, well, we shouldn't do that. Like, we shouldn't kill him. Like, we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of leave him here in this pit and tell dad that he got mauled. But then what happens next is they have this opportunity to sell him as a slave into Egypt. And so they do that. Joseph ends up down in Egypt. He gets imprisoned. He gets falsely accused for doing something he didn't do. He gets imprisoned for several years. And then in prison, he's able to interpret dreams, which he thinks is maybe his escape because the people whose dreams he interpreted were able, one of them unfortunately died, but the other one escaped and had the opportunity to tell the Pharaoh, listen, this guy is legit. Like he interpreted my dream, let him out. But as we read the story, we see that that person forgot. The cupbearer forgot about Joseph. Years go by, Pharaoh has these disturbing dreams, and Joseph gets called up through, again, God's providence, gets called up and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And this is where, where Joseph warns Pharaoh that, hey, we're having seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine are coming. And so in that moment, the Pharaoh promotes Joseph immediately to essentially second in command. And it's at that point that Pharaoh says, listen, you do what you got to do with your economic and political power to help prevent this from happening, help sustain us, carry this through. So through God's providential hand, Joseph's able to fill up these warehouses beyond measure, it says, so that we can provide for the story that we're in here today. So in severe, severe famine, the brothers uh, descend down to Egypt, and another dream is fulfilled where they're literally kneeling down at his throne, saying, provide for us. Sell us food. We'll sell ourselves to you for the rest of our lives. And in chapter 45, it says, Joseph says that he was sold by his brothers, but sent by God. And what they intended for evil, which we'll see in chapter 50, God intended for good. Sold by his brothers, but sent by God in every circumstance through those 20 years, 20 or more years, God was with Joseph. And it weren't for God's providence, Joseph, I don't know, wouldn't have made it out of the pit. And if it weren't for God's providence, we wouldn't be here today. I want to read Psalm 77, which I think speaks greatly of God's providence. Here's what the psalmist says, Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out, stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Have you ever been there where you moan at the thought of God's goodness and your spirit faints? You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? God, did you walk off the job? Are you there? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years in the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. 
I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. God's faithful. When the water saw you, this is a reflection of the Exodus, which is to come. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And verse 19 says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. What a beautiful image of God's providence, the fact that God leads the way, but his footprints are unseen. Through the deep, through the Red Sea, across the Jordan, God's footprints are unseen. This gives our suffering a new hope. Gives us confident assurance that God's unseen footprints are there with us, even in the most despairing circumstances. There's surely things in your life that bring you grief, that keep you up night, that make you wonder, did God take a day off or a year off? Is he even there? Isaiah 41, I'll close with this. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. This is the Lord. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Church, fear not. Do not be dismayed. The Lord will strengthen you. He'll help you. And he'll uphold you with his righteous right hand. You can walk with boldness every day in every circumstance, knowing that his providence, his faithfulness, and his forgiveness are with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your promises are in progress, that we get impatient, but you are faithful. Lord, I pray that these three frames would be close to heart. Thank you that you've sent your son that we've been forgiven, that your faithfulness has been revealed to us and your providence is seen in every area of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you're God and that we're not and that we can simply trust in you even in the things that we don't understand. Give us strength to face each day and the trials that come our way. We ask all this in the name of your Son.